Hi there, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to a deep dive on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 40-minute conversation between myself and Louis Gov, the CEO and co-founder of GovCal Research, as well as a fellow partner here at Evergreen. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, Louie, well, welcome back to the podcast. Good to have you back on. Thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here. Good to see you, Jeff. Everyone who's gonna is gonna hear this is obviously gonna hear the audio version of it. But I have the fortune of actually being able to see you right now. We're doing this over Teams, and and you look you look tan. You look like summer's been kind to you. I'm curious where you've been. Uh, how's summer been going for you guys? I don't know if summer's been kind to me, but uh, I've spent a bit of time in uh, back in France. It was sort of my first trip in 18 months. Uh, went home, visited family. Uh, as you know, I own a rugby team there, and my team made it back from uh, second division back to the first division, uh, which was a big deal and very exciting. So it, uh, oh, that's so awesome! Congrats. Thank you. That was exciting. Was it a was it a nail biter at the finish, or or was it like kind of? Did you think that that was going to happen the whole time, or how did it play out? Nailbiter doesn't begin to describe it. Um, it was actually, it was a 6-6 draw, which is an amazingly low score because rugby scores a little bit like American football. So it's basically two yep. field goals apart. Uh, after extra time, it was 3-3 during normal time, 6-6 after extra time. And um, when it's like that, you look at um, if anybody's had a yellow card or red card and it hasn't, then you count the number of penalties and it was an equal number of penalties. And so it had to go to penalty shootouts and it's only the third game in rugby history to go to penalty shootout. So, um, it was nail biter doesn't begin to describe it. Wow. That's crazy. I, I was going to say, uh, I, I was coaching my 11 year old, his all-star team this summer in baseball, if, you know, the Woodenville all-star team. And we won districts for the first time in a decade and ended up finishing third in state. So it was, it was a fun thing for our, our, these 11 year old boys, right. As we went through it. Um, but, uh, the so stakes say, are not as so high, you, right. So, so you say, you say, we, you say, we, so you're taking some of the 11 year olds glory here. Yeah, really. I mean, because without me at, thir- at first base all summer, I don't know if we would have produced as many runs or t- or gotten as many extra bags all as right. we did. Fair so. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a great experience. Congratulations on that. I mean, Thank you. Uh, it's so easy for me to get into sports and start talking athletics. But let's let's talk uh, Afghanistan. That's the news of the day right now. It's uh, you know over the weekend. I'm um, curious as an investor, you know, what are your thoughts on on what's going on there? What should investors be paying attention to what matters, what doesn't matter. Let's just talk about your thoughts on on the uh, what's pl- playing out in Afghanistan right now. Well, you know, obviously, the you know, I think uh, it was hard to to watch the images uh, coming through the TV this this uh, this uh, weekend and and not get upset, right? It was and made for for fairly uh, har- harrowing pictures. Having said that, you know, it's it's fairly unusual that geopolitical events have. Uh, 
have a, a big impact on markets, at least immediately. You know, over time, they may cast a long shadow, but it's it's unusual that uh, geopolitical events have an immediate uh, impact on markets. Um, and, you know, I think if you look at today, you know, the U.S. dollar is fairly stable. Oil is fairly stable. Gold is up a little bit, but, you know, not, nothing dramatic. And, and the stock market's down a little bit, but, again, nothing dramatic. So the markets, you know, by and large, uh, seem seem to be uh, to be brushing brushing this off, perhaps because all we're seeing, and again, this isn't to belittle how harrowing the pictures are and the human suffering and everything else, but uh, I think it's been known for a while that basically Afghanistan was a lost war, and this is more a question of sort of ripping the bandaid and and you know we can debate all day that the U.S. could have done it more gracefully, the the exit could have been better managed, but I think the the end result, uh, you know. Five days ago, the CIA was publishing reports saying that in 90 days, the Taliban would control uh, Afghanistan. Well, instead of 90 days, it's taken 90 hours. But, you know, by and large, I think this, again, this was more more or less in the cards, which perhaps explains why the market uh, are, are reacting in a sort of nonchalant way, the, the way it is. Um, but, you know, longer term, I, I do think that this, this is important. Um, you know, I think for Afghanistan, Afghanistan is about Afghanistan. For for everybody else, it's about America. And today, if you're Taiwan, if you're Japan, if you're Korea, you're probably wondering, you know, what is the U.S. security guarantee worth? If you're the Ukraine, you know, if I'm the Ukrainian president today, I'm probably thinking I should call Putin and make up with him. You know, if I'm the Taiwanese president, I'm probably thinking I don't want uh, – to piss off China too much, maybe I should put in a, you know, through the back channels, a phone call to Xi Jinping. So, you know, there's there's no doubt that, you know, through this, um, you know, America comes out looking weaker and therefore the, the U.S. security umbrella comes out looking weaker. And, you know, therefore, I think, you know, if you're Japan, if you're Korea, you're probably waking up this morning thinking maybe I, you know, need to be friendlier with China than than I have been. Uh, if you're European, you're probably thinking I need to be friendlier with Russia than than I have been so far. So, you know, over the long term, I think this is bullish for the renminbi, bullish for the uh, ruble, bullish for Russian bonds, bullish for Chinese bonds. Yeah. So let's talk about China. I mean, I think all that is linked. Good insights on that. Uh, you know, Afghanistan may not move global markets as much as certainly China, right? Although yeah, it is getting sure. front page news, right? So let's talk about China. Uh, we wrote, you wrote a piece or we ran a piece a few weeks ago in our Evergreen Virtual Advisor newsletter that goes out every Friday uh, talking about China crackdown on Chinese listed equities in the U.S., some of the implications there. But for those that maybe didn't read it or would prefer an audio version of that, can you do a recap of what's happening in China and some of the investment? implications there? Well, yeah, no. So look, the, the starting point is that really for the past uh, yeah, nine months or so, the Chinese government has been cracking down on its internet sector. We saw it. it yeah, I think the the kickoff gun, gun to, to it all was the, the pulling of the uh, Ant uh, IPO. Uh, then we had the crackdown on Jack Ma and Alibaba. Then we basically had the, the crushing of the Didi Chuxing IPO. And then finally, we had the decapitating of the uh, the educational listed stocks, you know, the, you know, the TAL, the uh, EDUs and, and et cetera. So uh, on the back of that, you know, basically Chinese stocks have fallen by a third. And I would say a lot of the, the big Chinese tech behemoths, you know, your Alibabas, your Tencents, your JD.coms, your Billy Billies, and all those guys have sometimes fallen a good bit more than that. So 
you know, and, and this against a backdrop where, you know, your Googles, your Amazons, your Facebooks were, were going through the roof. So you've had this sort of divergence between uh, sort of China tech and U.S. tech, very much driven by Chinese government policies. And so a lot of, you know, investors look at this, especially U.S. investors, they look at this and they think, well, what the hell? You know, why? Why would uh, why would the Chinese government kneecap its its companies in in such a way? And I think you know the the broader consensus in the U.S. is that the reason these companies got kneecapped is that they were in essence getting too powerful, and they were starting you know if Jack Ma was starting to cast a, a, a shadow over Xi Jinping, and that the, the Chinese government is very jealous of its political power and couldn't accept in essence that. You know, these guys basically got too big for their breaches, for, for, for lack of a better expression. And, you know, that might be part of it, but I think that's too, uh, too much of a black and white reading of the situation. That is what I hear. That is, that is the take that I hear most of the time. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I think it's a, a far too simplistic uh, position. The first, uh, I think the starting point when you look at uh, the Chinese Internet uh, crackdown is to acknowledge that the Internet sector or the tech sector in China – was a sort of historical anomaly in that, you know, if you look at the economy in China, the government is pretty much involved in, in every sector to a fairly large extent, uh, both through regulations, of course, but also very often through SOEs and through owner, direct ownership in a number of companies. Um, and tech grew so quickly and so fast from nothing that uh, it basically grew without the government interference. And so it, it was to start with, to begin with, it was a bit of an anomaly, which of course is what interested in, and what investors liked, right? It was like, oh, I can participate in China without too much government interference. Um, right. Now, the first thing, you know, that, that happened with Ant, well, you know, what, what happened, I think, initially is that, you know, tech grew sort of on its own, you know, as, as its own organic sector. And then when it got big enough, it basically started eating and cannibalizing into other sectors. And you saw this very clearly with Ant. Ant basically started taking over the business of the banks, just like we're seeing in the US, by the way. You know, you saw initially yep. a, a growth in the tech sector, but the tech sector gets so big that to keep growing, it has no choice but to basically cannibalize uh, other industries, whether it be the media industry, whether it be the, the financial industry and so on. So as it started to cannibalize the the other industries, and a lot of these industries, the government itself, like, and this is especially true of banking, is a big player. The government says, hold on, you like, what are you doing here? Um, and so there was an element, I think, especially like when you look at the crackdown on Ant, of sort of defending your own turf uh, and pushing back on tech on defending your own turf. So I think that was the, the first uh, the first important um, element. I think there's another element that is perhaps a second element that is uh, perhaps not appreciated uh, in, in the U.S. And that is that, you know, the U.S. Uh, really with Trump in 2017 turned the trade war into a tech war, right? When basically Trump said, from now on, we won't sell semiconductors to China, China said, well, obviously our dispute is no longer about the trade balance, but it's about our respective roles in the world. And now you're coming after us and you're trying to destroy our companies. You're trying to destroy ZT. You're just trying to destroy Huawei. If this is the case, we have no choice but to build our own semiconductor industry, our own telecom switches industry, and so on and so forth. And since then, the message from the Chinese government to the big tech companies has been, look, it's all nice and well to, to be focused on placing ads in cat videos. And it's all nice and well to develop video games. But... 
the time for that has passed. We're now in a fight for our survival with the U.S. You know, a little bit like, you know, during World War II, you know, U.S. scientists were told from now on you're working on the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Uh, and, right. you know, it, and if you'd said, well, no, you know, I want to uh, work on on figuring out how to better make cat videos, you would have, you would have been told, well, no, no, hold on. There's a, you know, there's a national emergency here. And this is the mood in China today. Uh, the mood is, look, and this was a mood that I think wasn't shared. This is a message the Chinese government passed to the big tech companies and that they didn't take on. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're still going to like work on putting ads in cat videos because that's how we make lots of money. This is now being realigned. Uh, now, of course, as a shareholder, you're like, well, hold on. I like putting ads in CAD videos uh, because that's how I make money. The, you know, Developing semiconductors for the government, that might not be such a profitable business. But So the, the, there was that element, which goes back to something you see in China time and time again, which is that you know, in sectors are called repeatedly to do national service. You know, Oil prices go up. Refiners are told, hey, you need to do national service, so on and so forth. So the, the, basically the tech industry is now being told you need to do national service. So that's that's the second thing. And I think the third thing, going back to this idea of tech cannibalizing, the third element behind the tech crackdown is there were more and more complaints, I would say, from you know mom and pops, like the small restaurants, the small grocery stores, that in essence, the big tech platforms were coming in and and crushing their margins. One of the big things that, that was starting to grow in China was what was called uh, community buying, where you know the Alibabas or the JDs would, in essence, gather up orders for simple things, eggs, milk, you know, bread, whatever, and in essence, crush the local uh, grocery, the local grocery store. And so, the message coming from the government is: look, if your value added in the system is that you've built this big network, often at a loss that you're now leveraging off this network to crush the margins of the sh small taxi driver, the small restaurant, the small hotel, or or a bed and breakfast. And if your only value add in the system is to really basically take away other people's margins and take it for yourself, then that doesn't work for us. And that, that's been part of the backlash. And I'm highlighting this because, um, you know, as this has unfolded, the typical reaction of investors has been, uh-oh, you know, more government interference, et cetera. Well, I'm out of China. I'm going to sell my Alibaba. I'm going to sell my Tencent. And I'm going to go back to what works. And what works is Google and it's Facebook and it's Amazon. And so you've seen this big rotation. And as these guys have done, gone down 40%, all these, uh, the U.S. ones have gone up 40%. And you've seen a narrower and narrower market in the U.S. driven by these big tech behemoths. Um, and I think this is quite dangerous. It's quite dangerous because, you know, the, the history, I'm sorry, I'm being very long winded, but I think that the, the no, history, great. Uh, I think the, the history, if you look of the past uh, 20 years, is that when we started to embrace China, and when I say we, I mean the Western world, when the Western world started to embrace China, we did it on the premise that as China developed economically, it would become more Western, you know, that would become more democratic and more civil rights and all that stuff. And that turned out to be a mistake. Not true. Turns out that China sort of blazed its own path and didn't become sort of more Western in its democratic organization. I'd go one step further. I'd say that in the past 20 years, it's not the Western world that's become, it's not China that's become more Western. It's the Western world that's become more Chinese. You know, I'll give you a simple example. When, you know, in, uh, in January of last year, when Wuhan locked down because of, of the COVID crisis, 
everybody in the Western world initially, you can go back to the Wall Street Journal editorials of the time thought, wrote, this is crazy. This is such a trampling of civic rights. You know, how can they imprison their entire population? You know, this could never happen in the Western world. Six weeks later, it was happening in Italy, then in France, uh, then in New York City, then in Los Angeles. You know, or you look at, you know, the Chinese response to the 2008 crisis. They basically told all their banks, you have to lend to, to your clients almost regardless and we'll backstop the losses. This is, of course, how most countries responded to the COVID crisis. You know, everybody, all the banks were told you have to lend to businesses and we'll backstop the losses. So, you know, we are becoming more and more Chinese uh, in our policy responses to a lot of things. And I highlight this because and the reason for that is is pretty simple is. You know, a lot of the policy responses, the Chinese policy responses are made with the idea of the greater good. You know, it's like we're doing this for the greater good. So we're crushing the Internet companies and telling them that they can't fleece the mom and pops and they can't fleece the, the small businesses uh, because that's what we need for the greater good of our broader economy. And, you know, as they do this, very often, I think Western policymakers look at this and tend to think, "Ooh, I'd like me some of that. I'd like me a piece of this. And so today, you know, as China cracks down on its Internet companies, what do you think policymakers in the Western world, whether in the U.S. or in Europe, are, are doing? I think they're looking at China and are they saying, wow, this is stupid. We never do that here. Or are they saying, oh, you know, let's see how this works out because this might make sense for us. So I'm highlighting this because I think there is this tendency of the Western world to, to, to move towards more China today. Chinese internet stocks are priced for the worst and Western internet stocks are priced for the best. Well, I guess we'll see in the next six months uh, whether that turns out to be accurate. Yeah. So for an investor, I mean, <clears throat> I got to be careful here, but um, for an investor that wants to play China, right, wants to invest in China's, China's growth, I, I read something from you that said, you know, your interpretation of this is, the, the Chinese government is basically saying, yes, you can play China's growth, but you're going to do it on our terms. Can yep. you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, look, I think that the first um, the first very simple takeaway from this um, and that I address in the piece you're, you're alluding to is that, you know, up until now, Chinese companies very often went abroad to look for capital uh, because the, the domestic avenues were tightly controlled. You know, there's a long list to list in Shanghai. The listing requirements to list in Hong Kong are quite stringent. And so it was always easier to go to New York or to go to Toronto uh, to, to or to London to, to raise uh, equity capital. What's I think what's just happened is, in essence, the Chinese government, with its crackdown of, of the education stocks, with its crackdown on DD, has now made it impossible for Chinese corporates to, to raise capital abroad, at least for the foreseeable future. So in essence, the Chinese, corp the Chinese government is saying to the rest of the world, look, you can invest in China if you want to, but it's going to have to be through Shanghai. It's going to have to be through Hong Kong, basically capital markets and financial markets that we control. So it's going to be on our own terms. And, you know, the days where the U.S. government can tell Didi Chuxing, we want to have access to your data, which was one of the big sticking points and why the China uh, reacted the way it did against Didi, uh, those those are now uh, yeah, square, squarely behind us. So that's number one. Having said that, to, to your question, you know, how do investors participate in China? You know, when I first started in this business, um, and as you can tell, I've got like 
graying hair and uh, and that's uh, retreating rapidly. Uh, so it was a few years ago now. When I first started in this business, one of our very first clients, Biat Nots, who who ran one of the, the big private banks in uh, in Geneva called uh, Notchtuki, said, "Louis, it's an, it's an easy business. You have to remember that the Fed will always do uh, whatever it needs to save the U.S. stockholder." Well, the Bundesbank, so it tells you my age because the Bundesbank still existed. This was before the ECB. The the Bundesbank will do whatever it takes uh, to always save the bondholder. So policy in Germany will always be beneficial to the bondholder and policy in the U.S. will always be beneficial to equity holders. And so Biat told me, look, you know, when you're in doubt, when markets have fallen apart, et cetera, you buy your bonds in Germany and you buy your stocks in um, in uh, in the U.S. Uh, and this was, you know, if I'd followed this advice, I'd be a lot wealthier today uh, than uh, than I I actually am. It was uh, very sound. Yeah, it advice. seems like pretty good advice at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great advice. It was terrific, terrific yep. advice. When you when you look at you know German boons with a minus 40 basis points, you know, I think when you told me that boon yields were probably six percent, so that you know that would have been a nice a nice tailwind. Um, having said that, the Bundesbank doesn't exist anymore. It's now the ECB, which is obviously on a on a path to trying to destroy the value of the euro. And instead, you know, I've written a number of pieces highlighting that actually the new Bundesbank in the system is no longer the is obviously no longer in Germany, but it's in Beijing and it's the People's Bank of China. Um, and I think this is a mistake that a lot of foreign investors make is they look at China and it's exciting and it's growing fast and there's you know lots of you know exciting business models and there's great companies to own no doubt about it but actually if you're looking for the best risk adjusted returns i think they're on the the fink income side because monetary policy fiscal policy are made to make sure that the renminbi remains a stable and strong currency because china needs that to de-dollarize its economy uh, and that the the renminbi bond market stays very stable and very strong um, and you know you look at the renminbi it's the best performing currency on a 10-year basis five-year basis three-year basis one-year basis and the rmb bond market is the best performing bond market on a 10-year five-year three-year one-year basis and most people you know they look at china and they think you know how do i buy stocks there when really they should be thinking, how do I buy bonds? Because you know, RMB bonds, in my mind, are the new German boons. They're the new anti-fragile bedrock on which you need to build your portfolio. You know, you can get growth stories for your stock portfolio everywhere with perhaps less risk than in China, but getting the kind of real rates in a strong currency with low volatility that China offers today, uh, you can't find that anywhere else. Yeah, that was going to be my final question is just touching on the Asian bond market. So, would you, I mean, in addition to China, what about the rest of Asia on the bond side? Well, so, you know, this is the both the big question mark and the massive opportunity. You know, in the 1970s, Treasury Secretary Connolly told the Europeans who were complaining about the, that the fact that the U.S. Would debase, was debasing the dollar. He said, the U.S. dollar is our currency and your problem. And the Europeans got the message and they said, okay, fine, we need to de-dollarize our trade. We need to move away our trade and savings from the US dollar. And that's when the Deutsche Mark really started to, to become a sort of key anchor currency. Uh, you know, when my grandparents saved in dollars, right, in the 50s and the 60s, you wanted, if you were living in France, you would want to have US dollars as your feel safe money. By the 1980s, it was the Deutsche Mark. And... Basically, as what happened was as the Deutsche Mark became the new currency anchor for Europe, bond yields all around Europe went down to the German level 
uh, and the currency started to rotate around to be like planets, the European currencies rotating no longer against the US dollar, but against the German sun. And so you made lots of money on German boons, but you made a ton more, a ton more money on Italian bonds, on um, uh, on Greek bonds, etc. In fact, for a period of about 25 years, Italian bonds was one of the best performing asset class in the world. It outperformed the S&P 500. You know, up up until the European crisis of 2011, 2012, you look at the 25 years before that, and Italian bonds were outperformed uh, massively U.S. equities. It was a terrific asset class to own because you were going from bond yields of 10, 11, 12 percent, you know, down to one or two. Um, right. The big the big question is whether you know we're going to see the same basically the same story play out in Asia with this time the renminbi and the renminbi bond market as the German Deutsche Mark and the German Bunds. And you're going to see Indonesian bond yields and Indian bond yields and Malaysian bond yields and whatever else go down to the level of of German bonds. Now, over the long term, you know, if you were looking for risk-adjusted return, very low volatility, you, you did very well with German boons. If you were willing to take more risk and a little more volatility, you did better with Italian, much better with Italian bonds. So, you know, I think today a, a, that's why you know we we launched this uh, this Asian government bond ETF. You know, I think a diversified portfolio of Asian bonds that includes both stable, you know, a stable bedrock of Chinese government bonds, but also uh, Japanese uh, yen assets, Japanese yen bonds. Since the Japanese yen tends to rise in periods of market stress, uh, it's, a, it's also a good anti-fragile asset. You, you add some of that with, you know, more volatile bonds like the Indonesian government bonds, the uh, Indian government bond, the Malay government bonds that tend to be, of course, more volatile, but higher yielding and therefore potentially offering you the scope for genuine capital gains over time. In addition to yield pickup and currency diversification, right? Yep, absolutely. No, no, look, you buy Asian bonds today because you want to diversify away from the dollar. That's number one, I think, for me. Uh, you look at the U.S. monetary policy, you look at the U.S. fiscal policy, and having a, a way to diversify away from the dollar, I think, is essential today in a portfolio. Uh, you know, the, I'm not saying the U.S. dollar is going to collapse, but uh, but you know, the odds of a 20 or 30 percent pullback in the U.S. dollar are hardly zero. When you look at how much money the U.S. government is printing and how much of that is just being printed by the Fed, so, you know, the scope for a big pullback in the U.S. dollar is undeniably there. Uh, so there's the odds of that. So there's this. There's indeed the yield pickup. Uh, and, you know, uh, Einstein, Einstein did say that, you know, compounding interest rates are the, the most powerful force in the universe. So, you know, you look at the yield pickup you have in Asia today for you know, if, if you just buy and hold for 10 years, given the yield differentials, it basically means that Asian, most Asian currencies would have to fall between 20 and 40 percent for you to lose money uh, relative to, U, to U.S. dollar. So if, you know, if Asian currencies don't go down 20 or 40 percent, you're better off owning, you know, a lot of these Asian bonds. So you've got the yield pickup. And yes, you know, it's it's hard to see, you know, when you look at Europe, you know, it's hard to see bond yields falling anymore. They're already in negative territory. When you look at the, the right. U.S., you know, you, you got 5% inflation, 1.5% bond yields or 1.3% bond yields. It's, you know, it's hard to see bond yields falling very much as well. So if you're looking for capital gains in bonds, you know, you, you need decently high yields to reach capital gains. And, you know, today you definitely have that in, in Asia. Follow-up question that I, I, I wasn't planning to ask you, but because we're talking about it. So diversification theme away from the dollar 
Can you talk about gold at all? And like, are you surprised that gold has remained maybe weak year to date, given maybe that theme? Yes and no. Uh, so first, I, I do have uh, gold gold positions, and so you know, obviously, I, I expected them to do better, and they haven't. Uh, having said that, you know, gold is many different things. Uh, yes, one of them is an anti-dollar, but then the dollar has been broadly flat for the year, right? I mean, give or take a couple percent against most currencies. So you, you really haven't had a, a, a dollar tailwind. So, so that's number one. So it's, it's many things. Number two, gold is an anti-fragile asset. You know, you own gold for periods of massive instability for, you know, for the un- right. The unknown events, right? But it's it's sort of the insurance. It's the you know like you buy, you know, insurance on your house against fires. Gold is a little bit like that for your portfolio. Now the reality is there has been no fire in the past year. You know we've basically gone through 12 months of the S&P going up every every month. So, you know, who needs an anti-fragile asset if things are hang, you know hunky dory? It's, and everything is doing great, right? Most fring, anti-fragile assets have been sort of left behind, almost historical anti-fragile. So that's number two. And, you know, in this theme that gold is many things, um, for me, and I can show you lots of charts on this, but gold is at, in its core has become in the past couple decades a derivative play on emerging markets um, for the simple reason that it's – if you look at the physical demand for gold, it's – basically comes from emerging markets. You know, about a third of physical demand is in India. More than a quarter is in China. Uh, another quarter is in the Middle East. You know, your, your typical American, your typical European, uh, your typical Japanese really doesn't buy that much gold. Uh, definitely not physical gold. I mean, sure, you know, you'll buy jewelry for your wife on Valentine's Day or something like that. But um, very right. few, very few Westerners buy gold as an investment proposition, partly because, you know, gold is in essence, a message that you either don't trust your banking system or you don't trust your central bank or you're worried about capital controls or you're worried about wealth confiscation. You know, if you live in the U.S., you don't worry that, you know, your wealth is going to be confiscated uh, all in, you know, rapidly um, without a certain level of due process. But in emerging markets, it's something you do worry about. Um, So, all this to say that gold is a play on emerging markets. So what you find is when emerging markets thrive, um, you know, your Indians, your Russians, your Chinese, when they make more money, some of that money flows into gold. Uh, it's just what happens. Uh, when emerging markets don't thrive, then there's less money going into gold. And, you know, emerging markets have had a very, very rough year. It has been, you know, if you look just at the past 10 weeks, the Nasdaq has outperformed the MSCI emerging market by 20%. Now that usually only happens in periods of deep crises. And you know, this is confluence of several events. There's China has been tightening, which has been good for the Chinese bond market and the renminbi, but bad for the stock market. It's COVID. Lingering you know, effect of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the the emerging markets haven't had the the vaccination rollout that uh, there's been right. in, uh, in, in the West. They've also had, you know, they don't have the same public health infrastructures. So, you know, COVID, you look at India, COVID, you know, has had a devastating impact. Latin America has had a devastating impact. So, you know, all this has added up to an environment of, you know, between the dollar that was flatlining, between problems in emerging markets, between, you know, better things to do with money than putting it in gold. All this has contributed to an environment where gold was not in demand. But, you know, 
all of this can turn around decently quickly. And you know, when you look at the extreme divergence in performance between the MSCI Emerging Market and NASDAQ, um, you know, it seems to me that we're probably due for that sort of crocodile mouth to snap back shut. And if it does, this could be supporting of, supportive of gold. Oh man, there's so many. Qu- I mean, there's so many ways I could I could go, but I think I need to pause and just say thanks for your time. Um, I have one bonus question for you. It's so great to get your insights on what's happening geopolitically and in different areas of the world, especially in Asia, uh, where you know a big uh, piece of your focus is. But uh, before you go. Uh, and you can't say my family's winery here on this one. So uh, <laughs> do you have a favorite wine tasting destination? And if not individual destination, what about region uh, that you enjoy going to? <laughs> well, look, uh, right now I'm uh, dialing in from uh, from Vancouver Island where, where I have my house. And, you know, my, my wife my and there's a lot of wineries here. You know, they, they like to pride themselves on being Napa North, which is very much of a stretch. But and as my wife, my <laughs> wife, uh, as my wife uh, often states, you know, if if you can't be with the one you, one you're with, love the one you're with. Uh, if you can't be with uh, the one you love, love the one you're with. Um, yep. And uh, so right now I'm on Vancouver Island, and that's what uh, I'm uh, I'm drinking. But uh, if I have to pick a region, I think that the well, let me put it this way: I think the most underpriced wine, the best value wines out there are the Chateauneuf du Paps, partly because it's small wineries and, you know, they're harder to find, et cetera. But, and especially the Chateauneuf du Pape whites, the, the whites, which tend to be, you know, fairly small production. But uh, the whole area around Avignon, if you have a chance to go there first, the region is absolutely gorgeous. You know, Provence is, is amongst the prettiest regions in France. Uh, the wineries there are, you know, thousands of years old. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, uh, Tyler, Tyler and I actually... Uh, toured there uh, over a decade ago. It's uh, it's probably the place where where you want to uh, to you know you can you can get some highly ranked wines for for 20 euro a bottle that you know at the same level of quality you're gonna add a zero if you're doing it in Burgundy and at least a zero if you're doing it in Bordeaux. So Chateauneuf du Pape is where the value is. I love it. There you go. Well, thanks again for your insights. Thanks for your time today. Uh, and, you know, enjoy the rest of your summer up there on, you know, on Vancouver Island. And we'll do this again soon. Sounds great, Jeff. Thank you very much. Hey, before okay. we go. Thanks, Louis. Before we go. Before we yep. go. How's this heat and the smoke affecting your winery? Not bad, actually. Uh, yeah, no, hardly any impact from what I've heard from, from the different vineyards that we work with and our winemaking team. So, you know, obviously we don't want we don't want a lot of that. I know it's been really bad down in Napa and California the last few years, oh. um, which which has impacted actually some of our distribution. You know, uh, you know we distribute across the country, and and uh, you know people that we work with around the country are saying, look, we need to fill. You know, we're not getting as much as we used to get from Napa, and and like they're really like in supply issues, right? Looking for other other. Oh, we're seeing uh, the same thing on Vancouver Island. So, we're seeing all yep. the all the all the uh, the Vancouver Island wineries of uh, they basically they're running out of stock. Right. Yeah. Same here. So, anyways, we'll have to, we'll have to open a few bottles again soon. Yeah. Sounds good. Right. Thanks, Louis. Have a good one. Good luck. Thanks, Jeff. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.